You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Congregation, we now take our Bibles and read together three passages from God's Holy Word. The first is Luke chapter 2, the verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, the son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. We turn now to Daniel chapter 2. The chapter relates that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. No one could tell him the dream or its significance until Daniel appeared. We pick up the reading at verse 29. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The winds swept them away, without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we'll interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he's placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he's made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. And just as you saw that the feet and toes are partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. 
With the toes are partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not the human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true. The interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering and incense be presented to him, the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. We turn in third place to Revelation chapter 5. John on the Isle of Patmos is allowed to see into heaven. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and that is God, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the roots of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Yet seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. 
And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Brothers and sisters, I proclaim to you this morning the word of our God as we could read it from Luke, Daniel, and Revelation. I ask your attention in particular for the word of God as we find it in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we tell ourselves, we tell each other, that the facts of life do not lie. They are what they are. We're told the economy is shrinking. That's got implications for us, we're told in turn. And we say, those are facts. We've got to live with it. It is what it is. Last week, our neighbor to the south received a new president in the person of Mr. Obama. And we say again, it's a fact. It is what it is. You can't change it. Tomorrow, our own parliament reconvenes. Another fact. There's a budget to be presented. What's it going to contain? We don't today know, but It'll be facts. Question. Why did Caesar Augustus issue a decree? Why was the decree that a census should be held? You see, those two were facts. For that matter, why does the Holy Spirit tell you and me about those facts of long ago? What changes if somehow verse 1 and then verse 2 and 3 with it were not in the Bible? And we're simply told that Joseph went from Nazareth to Bethlehem because, well, to visit his cousin. Facts congregation are not simply what they appear to be. Behind the facts is a bigger reality. Your God in control of this world. It was so long ago and it is so today. I summarize the sermon this morning with this theme. The king of kings uses the king of the world to bring about the coming of the king of Israel. In developing that theme, we ask your attention for three points. The first is the facts as society believe them. The second is the facts as the synagogue taught them. And in third place, the facts as the Lord unfolded it. It was, congregation, an undeniable fact to one and all in Israel 
that Caesar of Rome was the world's primary mover and shaker. Caesar spoke. There's to be a census. So, says verse 3, everyone went to his own town to register, including verse 4, Joseph travels from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The facts, you see, don't lie. Caesar, just who was he? A number of decades earlier congregation, the Roman Empire had conquered also the Middle East and annexed that parts of God's creation, Israel included, to its domain. As it turns out, though, several generals within the Roman army continued to fight one another. And that brought its level of civil war and instability, also in the Middle East. In this, in turn, we can understand affected life in the homes. Civil war affects the economy. It affects the safety on the street. It affects the mood of the people. Yet in the course of the years, one of these generals triumphed, a general by the name of Octavian. And this Octavian became the supreme ruler known as Caesar. He managed to unite the armies behind him. And that, in turn, brought about a level of peace amongst the nations, the Pax Romana, a peace that touched the peoples directly. Instead of upsets in the economy, there was room for people to do the daily work, and so the economy could grow. It affected to the mood in the home. There was a sense of peace and safety. Here was change, you see, that one could believe in. And so the Senate in Rome conferred on this Octavian a new title. They called him Augustus, a word that means the venerable one, the holy one, the sacred one. This is Caesar Augustus, the man of our text. In Rome there was an altar dedicated to the god of war. In the days of this Caesar Augustus, this altar was replaced by an altar to peace. This man became known as the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord of Lords. He was highly esteemed and appreciated. So when he voices a decree, there should be a census, then all the world obeys. A census. He'll have his reasons for it. Security purposes, perhaps. Taxation purposes. Whatever it may be, the history books outside the Bible record more evidences of a census being held. Decree from Caesar that the people have to be registered. If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 5, you'll find another indication of such a census. 
Acts 5, verse 37. There's a reference to Judas the Galilean, who appeared in the days of the census. And no, that is not the census of Luke chapter 1. That was the first census while Quirinius was governor of Syria. But it appears that the one of Acts chapter 5 is the second census when Quirinius was governor. But be that as it may, congregation, I draw to your attention the fact that this Judas the Galilean, says Acts chapter 5, led a band of people in revolt. He wasn't going to obey the decree that came from Rome. We're God's people. We should be independent. We can do our own thing. And so he sought to do exactly that, but, says the passage, he was killed and all his followers were scattered. You see, you don't argue with Caesar. Caesar's effect. He's life's primary mover and shaker. And you better get used to it. It's just how it is. This congregation was the fact, was the reality, as the people of the street understood things to be. Facts that do not lie. Okay, but what about the synagogue? It's our second point. The facts as the synagogue taught them. The point is important, congregation, because Sabbath by Sabbath, the people of Israel gathered in the synagogue. And then the question arises, what did the people of Israel hear in the proclamation of God's word, Sabbath by Sabbath? Did what they hear on the Sabbath in the synagogue square with what they heard on the streets? The priests and the Levites received from God the mandate to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue. And part of the proclamation of God's word as the priests and Levites passed it on to the people was, we understand, that no man can be sovereign. That no man is Lord of Lords. No man can be the Messiah, the Savior. After all, man is but a creature, has a place under the Creator. And then it is true, the priests and Levites passed on to the people, it is true that man rebelled against the Creator. It's recorded in Scripture in Genesis 3. But even that rebellion does not take away from the fact that God has placed man under him. And God himself, as ruler on high, has issued his decree that one day a seed would be given to the woman who would triumph over Satan and his dominion, such that Satan would be crushed and people reconciled to God. In the course of God's further revelation in Old Testament, 
the Lord made clear, and the priest passed this on to the people, that this Savior would come from the house of David. It's the material of 2 Kings chapter 7. David was told by the prophet Nathan that he would in turn receive a son, and that son would be called the Son of God, through whom the Lord himself would reign. And so the psalmist could voice the words of Psalm 89, and we have sung them together. How it is that God in his time would give another king in Israel. This one would crush his vows before him, would strike God's enemies. And the result is that God's people would have space, place to live, place to serve God. You see, that was the prophecy of the Old Testament. And that was impressed upon the people of Israel in the days of Luke 2. And then it's also true that the priests had to tell the people of the disobedience of Israel, how the people, because of their disobedience to God, were exiled out of the land and sent into Babylon. And of course that raises the question, the riddle, if now the people of God do not serve God, how is God going to bring about the triumph of David's house? And the answer is the passage is Daniel chapter 2. The facts as the people on the street would see them would say that Caesar is sovereign. But, say, the priests and the Levites in the synagogue, read Daniel chapter 2. Here's this image of this statue with a head of gold. It's Babylon. With a chest and arms of silver, it's the Medes and the Persians. With a belly of bronze, that's the Greek Empire. And legs and feet of iron, the Roman Empire. Iron is hard. And the priests and the Levites can tell the people in the days of Luke 2, we experience that the Romans are a hard nation. We feel crushed under them. On the street, the facts seem so very obvious that Caesar is sovereign. But, O people of God, bear in mind the vision of God in Daniel 2. Rome is not sovereign. Recall that stone that was carved out of the hillside and it rolled down. And it crushed this statue of gold, of silver, of bronze and iron. Crushed it to powder. And this rock grows. And it grows and it fills the whole world. Glorious gospel, we understand. But the priests and the Levites could pass on to the people of Israel and the people of Israel could embrace. Could they not? Except that the word that was heard in the synagogue was pie-in-the-sky stuff that didn't match the reality on the streets. The reality on the street was so clear. Rome issues a decree. 
And everybody sitting in the synagogue, Sabbath by Sabbath, has to get up and do what Rome says. And then we can hear the question, congregation. Then it's all fine for the ministers of those days to preach the good news of Daniel 2 and the triumph of God through the house of David. But outside the doors of the synagogue, the message is so different, it's so obvious that Caesar trumps the synagogue. What are the facts really? As they're recorded here? Or are the facts really as they're recorded in the newspapers of Jerusalem? And to the eye of any living person. The question's a no-brainer. It's all nice to hear the stuff that's told to us in the synagogue. By the end of the day, it's not what really makes life tick, is it? What they heard in the synagogue. It's a nice story. It soothes the pain. It's good material to pass on to the children. It's nice to read the Bible. It gives hope for the future. But in the grunt of daily life, it's somehow so remote. In their congregations, the third point, the facts as the Lord unfolded them. For the message the priests and the Levites could pass on to the people Sabbath by Sabbath, was it in fact remote from daily living? Not so, says the text before us. It is true that Joseph, in response to Caesar's decree, packs his bags in Nazareth, and travels the long and lonely roads to Bethlehem. But the Holy Spirit congregation wants us to know with this piece of information that Caesar is simply not on the top of the ladder. Caesar, too, is a creature who does not control leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful year and barren, health and sickness, the Creator alone controls it all. And the Creator alone, sovereign that He is, determines that His Son, to be born in the house of David, is to be born in Bethlehem according to Old Testament prophecy. And now the question is, how does God Most High ensure that Joseph and Mary in Nazareth travel the hundred kilometers or whatever it is all the way down to Bethlehem? How does he bring about the Joseph pack his bags and move? Why, congregation, God is pleased to use none other than his servants 
Caesar Augustus in Rome. Nothing but the best you see for his son. His son's to be born in Bethlehem, and God will use Caesar to bring it about. That's the force of the opening words of our text. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued that decree. In those days, which days? Those days, the days described in Luke chapter 1. What happened in that chapter? Why, God in heaven sent his angel from heaven to earth and instructed that angel to speak about babies being born. To Zechariah, he had to speak of a baby called John, a word that means Yahweh is gracious. And the whole point is that Zechariah should understand, and in him Israel should be told, that Yahweh's not forgotten his promises in the Old Testament, the promise to send the gospel of redemption. Yahweh is gracious. He sends now the forerunner. And there's a second baby to be born. Gabriel's got to go to Mary and tell her of another child to be called Jesus. Yahweh saves. You see, the facts on the streets may be determined by Caesar in Rome. But God has a bigger agenda. And the bigger agenda of the Lord of Lords is to fulfill the words spoken in the Old Testament. And so there's that Savior to be born who would deliver a people from bondage to sin to Satan. It's a Savior to be born in the house of David. And make no mistake, congregation, Joseph, he knew what kind of a child was to be born of his fiancée. It's recorded in chapter 1. Joseph knew that the Son of God would be made king over the world. The Lord would give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom shall have no end. Joseph knew this, but he now does not respond to the decree of Caesar and say, well, the child to be born is going to be the king, so I guess I don't have to obey Caesar anymore. None of that, but he understood that God was using Caesar as the tool to bring Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And so instead of rebelling as did this Judas the Galilean of Acts 5, Joseph actually packs his bags and he moves in obedience to Caesar's degree and goes to Bethlehem. He went in faith, in obedience to God's command to honor father and mother, and so to honor the emperor. And here congregation was enormous comfort for Joseph, for Mary, the God, 
of Israel, the God of the covenants, is so much God that even Caesar is a tool in his hands. How wonderful. How encouraging such such a perspective. This God is busy cutting that little stone out of the mountainside. And that stone will roll and it will grow. And as a result, all human empires will be crushed. All of that, Joseph may know, will begin in Bethlehem. There, where the house of David began. There's where this child, this son of David, shall be born. And there he shall begin his work of restoration. He shall become king. Oh yes, his throne will be a cross. But it's he's king nevertheless. For on that cross he will defeat Satan. And will triumph over sin. And because of that victory on the cross... This child is going to be taken up into heaven. Fulfillments again of the prophecies of God in the Old Testament. And he'll receive from God the throne at God's right hands. You see, here's encouragement for Joseph, for Mary, and for the people of Israel to the degree they want to listen. It's the words of Psalm 2. The nations rage. The kings conspire against the Lord and his anointed. But God has them all in derision. He has proclaimed, You are my son. Today I am your father. Ask, I'll make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. And so the kings of the earth are told. Be wise. Serve the Lord with fear. And you, congregation, and I, who know the word of God, know that this instruction from God in Psalm 2 is the more valid today, for Christ has triumphed on the cross. And he has ascended into heaven. And he's received from God the throne at his right hand. And he's taken the scroll out of the hand of God. He's opened that scroll with its writing on back and front. The scroll that contains the plan of God for world history. He's opened the scroll. And he makes history happen. Caesar was his tool. So was Napoleon. So is President Obama. So is Mr. Harper. So many tools in the hands of God Most High. Tell me. Do the facts of life lie 
brothers, sisters, you need the glasses of Scripture of faith to read the facts correctly and understand what they really say. The synagogue taught the facts in the face of the facts as the papers reported them. And who had it right? Those who know that God is God most high understands that the synagogue had the facts as they really were. For they understood the realities of life as enlightened by the word of God. And so it is today. What are the facts as they are in our land, our times? Are the facts simply the economy is as it is? And we have a new president as the war in the Middle East? Is that all we can say? Are there facts all right? But now the real facts. That's the sovereignty of your God, of your Savior. Reading the facts in the lights of his word gives it all a different color, gives it all a different spin, gives it all a far brighter perspective. Anxiety because of the facts as we see them with the naked eye. Beloved, there is no place for that. For the movers and the shakers of this world do not live on this earth. They're not in the banks. The movers and shakers are not in the parliament buildings and congresses of the world. But the mover, the shaker of today's world is your Savior. He who laid down his life for your sin and reconciled you to your God. Tell me. As he leads world history, as things unfold in our times, will this Savior do you the wrong? Or are you in fact safe in his hand no matter how things unfold? There we understand. As the glorious gospel of the synagogue proclaimed today still in the midst of life's facts as society sees it. And so we're encouraged, greatly encouraged in our land, around the world, one alone is sovereign, our Savior. And soon, it's fact, he's coming again. And so, congregation, be wise Be encouraged, be strengthened, acknowledge who is King of Canada. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web 
at www.langleycanrc.org.